0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we are continuing with our reading of women, race, and class. We'll be finishing off the first chapter. Last week, the first half of this chapter detailed some of the ways that black women who were slaves were misrepresented in different writings, people projecting different views of what being a black woman slave meant, what how they compared to white women, how they compared to womanhood as an idea, had they fulfilled a role compared to other black slaves, like in contrast to black men, etc. The shorter answer is, most people were getting it wrong. Continuing on from last week, most of the same content warnings still apply. A new content warning for this week is a content warning for the killing of children, but just to reiterate, content warnings from last week that are carrying over slavery, pregnancy, rape, death, torture, racism, blood and abuse related to many of the previous warnings. It's still a heavy one. Less personal accounts than last week, but just be warned that these things do come up. With that said, let's finish off the first chapter of the book. In an essay I wrote in 1971, footnote 40, using the few resources allowed to me in my jail cell, I characterized the significance of the slave woman's domestic functions in the following way. Quote, in the infinite anguish of ministering to the needs of the men and children around her, she was performing the only labour of the slave community which could not be directly and immediately claimed by the oppressor. There was no compensation for work in the fields. It served no useful purpose for the slaves. Domestic labour was the only meaningful labour for the slave community as a whole. Precisely through performing the drudgery which has long been a central expression of the socially conditioned inferiority of women, the black woman in chains could help to lay the foundation for some degree of autonomy, both for herself and her men. Even as she was suffering under her unique oppression as female, she was thrust into the center of the slave community. She was, therefore, essential to the survival of the community. End quote. I have since realized that the special character of domestic labor during slavery, its centrality to men and women in bondage, involved work that was not exclusively female. Slave men executed important domestic responsibilities, and were not, therefore, as Kenneth Stamp would have it, the mere helpmates of their women. For while women cooked and sewed, for example, men did the gardening and hunting. Yams, corn, and other vegetables, as well as wild animals such as rabbits and opossums, were always a delicious addition to the monotonous daily rations. The sexual division of domestic labor does not appear to have been hierarchical. Men's tasks were certainly not superior to, and were hardly inferior to, the work performed by women. They were both equally necessary. Moreover, from all indications, The division of labor between the sexes was not always so rigorous, for men would sometimes work in the cabin and women might tend the garden and perhaps even join the hunt. Footnote 41 The salient theme emerging from domestic life in the slave quarters is one of sexual equality. The labor that slaves performed for their own sake and not for the aggrandizement of their masters was carried out on terms of equality. Within the confines of their family and community life, Therefore, black people managed to accomplish a magnificent feat. They transformed that negative equality, which emanated from the equal oppression they suffered as slaves, into a positive quality, the egalitarianism characterizing their social relations. Although Eugene Genovese's argument in Roll, Jordan Roll is, at best, problematic, i.e. that black people accepted the paternalism associated with slavery, He does present an insightful, though abbreviated, picture of the slave's home life. The story of the slave women as wives requires indirect examination. To deduce it from an assumption that the man was a guest in the house will not do. A review of the actual position of the men as husbands and fathers suggests that the position of the women was much more complex than usually credited. The women's attitude towards housework, especially cooking, and toward their own femininity by itself, belies the conventional wisdom, according to which the women unwittingly helped ruin their men by asserting themselves in the home, protecting their children, and assuming other normally masculine responsibilities. End quote. Footnote 42. While there is a touch of male supremacy in his analysis, implying, as he does, that masculinity and femininity are immutable concepts, he clearly recognizes that, Quote, what has been usually viewed as a debilitating female supremacy was in fact a closer approximation to a healthy sexual equality than was possible for whites, and perhaps even for postbellum blacks. End quote. Footnote 43. The most fascinating point Genovese raises here, although he does not develop it, is that women often defended their men from the slave system's attempts to demean them. Most women, perhaps a substantial majority, he says, understood that whenever their men were degraded, so too were they. Furthermore, quote, they wanted their boys to grow up to be men, and knew perfectly well that, to do so, they needed the example of a strong black man in front of them. End quote. Footnote 44. Their boys needed strong male models to the very same extent that their girls needed strong female models. If black women bore the terrible burden of equality and oppression, if they enjoyed equality with their men in their domestic environment, then they also asserted their equality aggressively in challenging the inhuman institution of slavery. They resisted the sexual assaults of white men, defended their families, and participated in work stoppages and revolts. As Herbert Aptiker points out in his pioneering work American Negro Slave Revolts, footnote 45, they poisoned their masters, committed other acts of sabotage, and, like their men, joined maroon communities, and frequently fled northward to freedom. From the numerous accounts of the violent oppression overseers inflicted on women, it must be inferred that she who passively accepted her lot as a slave was the exception, rather than the rule. When Frederick Douglass reflected on his childhood introduction to the merciless violence of slavery, footnote 46, he recalled the floggings and torture of many rebellious women. His cousin, for example, was horribly beaten as she unsuccessfully resisted an overseer's sexual attack. Footnote 47 A woman called Aunt Esther was viciously flogged for defying her master, who insisted that she break off relations with a man she loved. Footnote 48 One of Frederick Douglass' most vivid descriptions of the ruthless punishments reserved for slaves involved a young woman named Nellie, who was whipped for the offense of impudence. There were times when she seemed likely to get the better of the brute, but he finally overpowered her and succeeded in getting her arms tied to the tree, towards which he had been dragging her. The victim was now at the mercy of his merciless lash. The cries of the now helpless woman while undergoing the terrible infliction, were mingled with the hoarse curses of the overseer, and the wild cries of her distracted children. When the poor woman was untied, her back was covered with blood. She was whipped, terribly whipped, but she was not subdued, and continued to denounce the overseer, and to pour upon him every vile epithet of which she could think. End quote. Footnote 49. Douglas adds that he doubts whether this overseer ever attempted to whip Nellie again. Like Harriet Tubman, numerous women fled slavery for the North. Many were successful, though many more were captured. One of the most dramatic escape attempts involved a young woman, possibly a teenager, named Anne Wood, who directed a wagonload of armed boys and girls as they ran for their freedom. After setting out on Christmas Eve, 1855, they engaged in a shootout with slave catchers, Two of them were killed, but the rest, according to all indications, made their way to the north. Footnote 50 The abolitionist Sarah Grimke described the case of a woman whose resistance was not so successful as Anne Woods. This woman's repeated efforts to escape from the domination of her South Carolina master earned her so many floggings that a finger could not be laid between the cuts. Footnote 51 Because she seized every opportunity to break free from the plantation, she was eventually held prisoner, in a heavy iron collar, and in case she managed to break the collar, a front tooth was pulled as an identification mark, although her owners, said Grimke, were known as a charitable and Christian family. This suffering slave, who was the seamstress of the family, was continually in their presence, sitting in the chair to sew, or engaging in other household work, with her lacerated and bleeding back, her mutilated mouth and heavy iron collar without, so far as appeared, exciting any feelings of compassion. End quote. Footnote 52. Women resisted and advocated challenges to slavery at every turn. Given the unceasing oppression of women, quote, no wonder, said Herbert Aptiker, The Negro woman so often urged haste in slave plottings. Footnote 53 Virginia, 1812 She said they could not rise too soon for her, as she had rather be in hell than where she was. Mississippi, 1835 She wished to God it was all over and done with, that she was tired of waiting on white folks. One may better understand now a Margaret Garner, fugitive slave, who, when trapped near Cincinnati, Killed her own daughter and tried to kill herself. She rejoiced that the girl was dead. Now she would never have to know what a woman suffers as a slave, and pleaded to be tried for murder. I will go singing to the gallows rather than be returned to slavery. End quote. Footnote fifty-four: Maroon communities composed of fugitive slaves and their descendants could be found throughout the South as early as 1642 and as late as 1864. These communities were havens for fugitives, served as bases for marauding expeditions against nearby plantations, and at times supplied leadership to planned uprisings. Footnote 55 In 1816, a large and flourishing community was discovered. 300 escaped slaves, men, women, and children, had occupied a fort in Florida. When they refused to surrender themselves, the army launched a battle, which lasted for 10 days and claimed the lives of more than 250 of the inhabitants. The women fought back on equal terms with the men. Footnote 56. During the course of another confrontation in Mobile, Alabama in 1827, men and women alike were unrelenting, according to local newspapers, like Spartans. Footnote 57. Resistance was often more subtle than revolts, escapes, and sabotage. It involved, for example, the clandestine acquisition of reading and writing skills, and the imparting of this knowledge to others. In Natchez, Louisiana, a slave woman ran a midnight school, teaching her people between the hours of 11 and 2, until she had graduated hundreds. Footnote 58. Undoubtedly, many of them wrote their own passes, and headed in the direction of freedom. In Alex Haley's Roots, footnote 59, his fictionalized narrative of his ancestors' lives, Kunta Kinte's wife, Belle, painfully taught herself to read and write. By secretly reading her master's newspapers, she stayed abreast of current political events and communicated this knowledge to her sister and brother slaves. No discussion of the part played by women in resisting slavery would be complete without paying tribute to Harriet Tubman for the extraordinary feats she performed as the conductor, for over 300 people on the Underground Railroad. Footnote 60 Her early life unfolded in a manner typical of most slave women's lives. A field hand in Maryland, she learned through work that her potential as a woman was the same as any man's. Her father taught her to chop wood and split rails, and they worked side by side. He gave her lessons which would later prove indispensable during the 19 trips she made back and forth to the South he taught her how to walk soundlessly through the woods, and how to find food and medicine among the plants, roots, and herbs. The fact that she never once suffered defeat is no doubt attributable to her father's instructions. Throughout the Civil War, Harriet Tubman continued her relentless opposition to slavery, and even today, she still holds the distinction of being the only woman in the United States ever to have led troops into battle. Whatever the standards used to judge her, black or white, male or female, Harriet Tubman was indeed an exceptional individual. But from another vantage point, what she did was simply to express in her own way the spirit of strength and perseverance which so many women of her race had acquired. This bears repeating. Black women were equal to their men in the oppression they suffered. They were their men's social equals within the slave community, and they resisted slavery with a passion equal to their men's. This was one of the greatest ironies of the slave system, for in subjecting women to the most ruthless exploitation conceivable, exploitation which knew no sex distinctions, the groundwork was created not only for black women to assert their equality through their social relations, but also to express it through their acts of resistance. This must have been a terrifying revelation for the slave owners, for it seems they were trying to break this chain of equality through the especially brutal repression they reserved for the women. Again, it is important to remember that the punishment inflicted on women exceeded in intensity the punishment suffered by their men, for women were not only whipped and mutilated, they were also raped. It would be a mistake to regard the institutionalized pattern of rape during slavery as an expression of white men's sexual urges, otherwise stifled by the specter of white womanhood's chastity. That would be far too simplistic an explanation. Rape was a weapon of domination. A weapon of repression, whose covert goal was to extinguish slave women's will to resist, and, in the process, to demoralize their men. These observations in the role of rape during the Vietnam War could also apply to slavery. In Vietnam, the US military command made rape socially acceptable. In fact, it was unwritten but clear policy. Footnote 61. When GIs were encouraged to rape Vietnamese women and girls, and they were sometimes advised to search women with their penises, footnote 62, a weapon of mass political terrorism was forged. Since the Vietnamese women were distinguished by their heroic contributions to their people's liberation struggle, the military retaliation specifically suited for them was rape. While women were hardly immune to the violence inflicted on men, They were especially singled out as victims of terrorism by a sexist military force governed by the principle that war was exclusively a man's affair. Quote, I saw one case where a woman was shot by a sniper, one of our snipers, a G.I. said. When we got up to her she was asking for water, and the lieutenant said to kill her. So he ripped off her clothes, then stabbed her in both breasts. They spread her eagle and shoved an e-tool, entrenching, up her vagina and then they took that out and used a tree limb, and then she was shot. End quote. Footnote 63. In the same way that rape was an institutionalized ingredient of the aggression carried out against the Vietnamese people, designed to intimidate and terrorize the women, slave owners encouraged the terroristic use of rape in order to put black women in their place. If black women had achieved a sense of their own strength and a strong urge to resist, then violent sexual assaults, so the slaveholders might have reasoned, would remind the women of their essential and inalterable femaleness. In the male supremacist vision of the period, this meant passivity, acquiescence, and weakness. Virtually all the slave narratives of the 19th century contain accounts of slave women's sexual victimization at the hands of their masters and overseers. Quote, Henry Bibb's master forced one slave girl to be his son's concubine mf jameson's overseer raped a pretty slave girl and solomon northrop's owner forced one slave patsy to be his sexual partner End quote. footnote 64 despite the testimony of slaves about the high incidence of rape and sexual coercion the issue of sexual abuse has been all but glossed over in the traditional literature on slavery it is sometimes even assumed that slave women welcomed and encouraged the sexual attentions of white men what happened between them, therefore, was not sexual exploitation, but rather, miscegenation. In the section of Rowell Jordan Rowell, devoted to interracial sex, Genovese insists that the problem of rape pales in relation to the problem of merciless taboos surrounding miscegenation. Quote, Many white men, the author says, who began by taking a slave girl in an act of sexual exploitation, ended by loving her, and the children she bore. Footnote 65. The tragedy of miscegenation lay, as a consequence, not in its collapse into lust and sexual exploitation, but in the terrible pressure to deny the delight, affection, and love that often grew from tawdry beginnings. End quote. Footnote 66. Genovese's overall approach hinges on the issue of paternalism. Slaves, he argues, more or less accepted the paternalistic posture of their masters and masters were compelled by their paternalism to acknowledge slaves' claims to humanity. But since, in the eyes of the masters, the slave's humanity was childlike at best, it is not surprising that Genovese believes he has discovered a kernel of that humanity in miscegenation. He fails to understand that there could hardly be a basis for delight, affection, and love, as long as white men, by virtue of their economic position, had unlimited access to black women's bodies it was as oppressors, or, in the case of non-slave owners, as agents of domination, that white men approached black women's bodies. Genevieves would do well to read Gail Jones' Godora," footnote 67, a recent novel by a young black woman which chronicles the attempts of several generations of women to preserve the evidence of the sexual crimes committed during slavery. E. Franklin Frazier thought he had discovered in miscegenation black people's most important cultural achievement during slavery. Quote, The master in his mansion and his colored mistress in her special house nearby represented the final triumph of social ritual in the presence of the deepest feelings of human solidarity. End quote. Footnote 68. At the same time, however, he could not entirely dismiss the numerous women who did not submit without a fight. Quote, that physical compulsion was necessary at times to secure submission on the part of black women is supported by historical evidence and has been preserved in the tradition of negro families." End quote. footnote 69 He cites the story of a woman whose great-grandmother always described with enthusiasm the battle which had earned her the considerable scars on her body but there was one scar she persistently refused to explain saying, whenever she was asked about it, white men are as low as dogs, child. Stay away from them. After her death, the mystery was finally solved. Quote, She received that scar at the hands of her master's youngest son, a boy of about 18 years, at the time she conceived their child, my grandmother, Ellen. Footnote, 70. White women who joined the abolitionist movement were especially outraged by the sexual assaults on black women, Activists in the female anti-slavery societies often related stories of brutal rapes of slave women as they appealed to white women to defend their black sisters. While these women made inestimable contributions to the anti-slavery campaign, they often failed to grasp the complexity of the slave woman's condition. Black women were women indeed, but their experiences during slavery, hard work with their men, equality within the family, resistance, floggings and rape, had encouraged them to develop certain personality traits which set them apart from most white women. One of the most popular pieces of abolitionist literature was Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, a book which rallied vast numbers of people, and more women than ever before, to the anti-slavery cause. Abraham Lincoln once casually referred to Stowe as a woman who started the Civil War, yet the enormous influence her book enjoyed cannot compensate for its utter distortion of slave life. The central female figure is a travesty of the black woman, a naive transposition of the mother figure, praised by the cultural propaganda of the period from white society to the slave community. Eliza is white motherhood incarnate, but in blackface. Or rather, because she is a quadroon, in just a little less than whiteface. It may have been Stowe's hope that the white women readers of her novel would discover themselves in Eliza. They could admire her superior Christian morality her unfaltering maternal instincts, her gentleness and fragility. For these were the very qualities white women were being taught to cultivate in themselves. Just as Eliza's whiteness allows her to become the epitome of motherhood, her husband, George, whose ancestry is also predominantly white, comes closer than any other black man in the book to being a man in the orthodox male supremacist sense. Unlike the domestic, acquiescent, childlike Uncle Tom, George is ambitious, intelligent, literate, and most important of all, he detests slavery with an unquenchable passion. When George decides, very early in the book, to flee to Canada, Eliza, the pure, sheltered housewife, is terribly frightened by his overflowing hatred of slavery. Quote, Eliza trembled and was silent. She had never seen her husband in this mood before, and her gentle system of ethics seemed to bend like a reed in the surges of such passions." End quote. footnote 71 Eliza is practically oblivious to the general injustices of slavery her feminine submissiveness has prompted her to surrender herself to her fate as a slave and to the will of her good kind master and mistress it is only when her maternal status is threatened that she finds the strength to stand up and fight like the mother who discovers she can lift an automobile if her child is trapped underneath Eliza experiences a surge of maternal power, when she learns that her son is going to be sold. Her kind master's financial troubles compel him to sell Uncle Tom and Eliza's son Harry. Despite, of course, the compassionate and maternal pleas of his wife, Eliza grabs Harry and instinctively runs away, for, quote, Stronger than all was maternal love, wrought into a paroxysm of frenzy by the near approaches of a fearful danger. End quote. Footnote 72. Eliza's mother courage is spellbinding. When, on the course of her flight, she reaches an impassable river of melting ice, the slave catcher hot on her heels, she spirits Harry across. Quote, Nerved with strength such as God only gives to the desperate, she vaulted sheer over the turbid current by the shore, and onto the raft of ice beyond. With wild cries and desperate energy, she leaped to another and still another cake, stumbling, leaping, slipping, springing, upwards again. Her shoes are gone, her stockings cut from the feet, while blood marked every step, but she saw nothing, felt nothing, till dimly, as in a dream, she saw the Ohio side, and a man helping her, up the bank. End quote. Footnote 73. The implausibility of Eliza's melodramatic feat matters little to Stowe, because God imparts superhuman abilities to gentle Christian mothers. The point, however, is that because she accepted wholesale 19th-century mother worship, Stowe miserably fails to capture the reality and the truth of black women's resistance to slavery. Countless acts of heroism carried out by slave mothers have been documented. These women, unlike Eliza, were driven to defend their children by their passionate abhorrence of slavery. The source of their strength was not some mystical power attached to motherhood, But rather their concrete experiences as slaves. Some, like Margaret Garner, went so far as to kill their children rather than witness their growth to adulthood under the brutal circumstances of slavery. Eliza, on the other hand, is quite unconcerned about the overall inhumanity of the slave system. Had she not been threatened with the sale of her son, she would have probably lived happily ever after under the beneficent tutelage of her master and mistress. The Elizas, if they indeed existed, were certainly oddities among the great majority of black women. They did not, in any event, represent the accumulated experiences of all those women who toiled under the lash for their masters, worked for and protected their families, fought against slavery, and who were beaten and raped, but never subdued. It was those women who passed on to their nominally free female descendants a legacy of hard work, perseverance and self-reliance, a legacy of tenacity, resistance and insistence on sexual equality. In short, a legacy, spelling out standards, for a new womanhood. And that's it for this week's reading and the first chapter of the book. Uh, Some early thoughts I have about this I picked this because, in the title itself, it very particularly addresses two underrepresented things in the readings we've been doing so far, and in particular, I'm enjoying the intersectionality of it. In the discussion so far, you cannot represent the experiences of the people being talked about if you try to ignore any of the three aspects from the title of the book. The fact that they are black, slave, Women is key to the oppressions they're facing, the way they're being oppressed, but also the ways that they are behaving and responding to that oppression, the ways that they are freeing themselves, the ways that they are fighting back. All of these things require you understand their identity as opposed to flattening it. A lot of this first chapter is talking about people who don't understand, declaring things that don't make any sense or fictionalized accounts flattening the experiences to try and present it from a white perspective in a way that is either palatable or makes more sense to a white audience, but ultimately misrepresents the actual real lives of the people who lived through things like this. So basically this feels like it was a good choice of book to try and dig into these topics that so far aren't being addressed. The readings thus far have been a little bit more abstract in that they are based on the material reality of situations, but they don't dig into how people's identities or categories feed into class issues. They're extremely flat structurally. There is a lot of talking about the proletariat as a singular class without digging into the ways in which people within the proletariat actually actively oppress each other that's all so far, I'm looking forward to more of this book. If you have any questions, corrections, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email leftistreading at gmail.com, or contact this show on Twitter, at leftistreading. This show is hosted on abnormalmapping.com, where you can find it and lots of other leftist podcasts about various kinds of media. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. But that's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.